your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Micah, the book of Micah chapter 1, and while you're finding that, this is the perfect time for me to tell you how much I love my mother. <laughs> so um, I want to go ahead and welcome you to week six of a series that has us walking through the 12 minor prophets, which are the, the shorter prophetic books that were written several centuries before the birth of Christ, and as we said all along, these books were collected um, into one scroll and became known at first as just the 12. Um, of course, now we have them as 12 individual books, the minor prophets, and the truth that has radiated and that will radiate as we walk through each and every prophecy, each and every book, is that ultimately God is not trying to pay us back as if he has somehow lost control of justice. The point is that God is trying to bring us back. And this is the reason we're calling this series, Come Back to Me. For the Minor Prophets, 12 books of God calling his people, God basically saying, come back to me. Come back to me before it is too late. And so God is calling a people back to himself through planned, through purposeful warnings meant to open the eyes and hearts of those that, that heard them. Yet, I think that we have a really good sermon illustration right in front of us today. Just think about how we even handle things such as alerts on our phone when our phone goes off. Do we look? Do we pay attention? Do we turn it off and keep going? What do we do with the, the alerts that are happening? And I think what we tend to see in each of the minor prophets is an audience who struggles to obey God, who um, even many of them put away the Word of God completely or when the Word of God keeps coming to them, they eventually despise the Word of God. They hate um, the Word of God. And let me just lay this out before us this morning. This Word will either save us or it will crush us. It will either save us or it will completely destroy us. This past June, I did something um, that I haven't done in years. And this is going to be very anticlimactic here. But what I did was I listened to the airline video as it gave its instructions. I normally tune it out. I normally put my attention on everything else. If you haven't flown recently, basically now everything's on video right in front of you and they or in the TV and they kind of go over their instructions. But I, I normally just tune it out, but this time I, I didn't because uh, there had been an in-flight casualty a few months before I flew, so all of a sudden it made me kind of pay attention a little more to what was happening. So as the video asked us to fasten our seatbelts, I looked down to make sure my seatbelt was fastened. As the video described the oxygen mask that would um, fall out of the, the, the cabin up top, um, if something happened, I looked to see where those might be coming um, from. When uh, the video described where the exits were, I made sure I found exactly where my exit um, would be. And that's when I noticed what was normally true of, of me. Not many people were paying attention at all. The woman next to me was actually still talking on her phone. Um, the guy, um, Dagnall, uh, up one row from me, was playing a video game on his phone. And then a person um, right in front of me had fallen asleep already. So um, all of that happening. And it, it made me think about what, what would happen had the airline used a more dramatic tone um, in its warning. Meaning, what if the video actually showed a plane crashing? Or what if the video pictured a plane on fire going down um, into the ocean while scrolling the words, this could happen to you? 
I mean, what would happen, um, let's say if the video showed people being trampled upon by others because they had no idea what to do in case of emergency. Now, of course, we know what would happen. That airline would go bankrupt because they would lose customers. Um, they would probably, in today's world, they would be sued for causing someone to have bad feelings about something else. Yet, think about this. Love should caution those that it loves. It, it, it's not irresponsible for someone to say something bad could happen. We need to know how to handle it. Think about this. It's one thing to refuse to listen to an airline video. It's quite another to refuse to listen to God. It's one thing to refuse to fly on an airplane because they hurt your feelings or they, they, they said something you didn't like. It's another to refuse to acknowledge God or to try to remove him and his influence from our lives. And this is kind of where we are this morning in coming to the book of Micah. Now, I'm going to go ahead and lay it out there. He is absolutely my, my favorite prophet. Um, there, uh, you want to just throw that out there at first. His name means who is like the Lord, which I must tell you this. Um, it doesn't mean what I thought it meant. So I spent 43 years of my life thinking that my name meant something other than what it means. And what I mean by that is this. So 43 years of self-identity just flushed down the toilet and doing a study on the book of Micah. What this phrase, who is like the Lord, is not a description of godliness. I always thought, Micah, who is like the Lord? Yeah, well, that's a great name. Who is Micah? Who is like the Lord? But it's not a description of me. It's a declaration. In fact, it's actually a rhetorical question. So um, the fact that the meaning of my name is a rhetorical question explains a whole lot. But just think about this. The, the de declaration here is not Micah, who is like the Lord. It's a rhetorical question. Who is like the Lord? Who in the world is like him? And so we see that question at the end of the book of Micah. He's actually going to pose that question partially to the nation of Israel, primarily to the nation of Judah. Who is like this God? Who is like the one that we serve? And so Micah is, is a hard prophet to understand because if you read through the whole book, and this is what we're not doing in this series, but if you read through this whole book, Micah um, alternates quickly but back and forth between threats of doom and promises of hope. Yet that, that's not the way we're going to proceed this morning. But the reason this book is arranged the way it is is to make the point, um, to make, make the point that where God and his people are concerned, there is always hope for us, even in the midst of catastrophe, even when doom seems to, to be playing out in our lives. So what Micah does is he mingles gloom and glory all throughout this book. Now this book also does something else. It gives us one of the most significant prophecies um, of the birth of Jesus Christ in all of the Old Testament, pointing 700 years before Christ's birth to the birthplace where Christ would be born, Bethlehem, and to the fact that Christ would be the eternal one, that he would be God. So in summarizing this book, one commentator put it this way, through the great book of Micah, we see a prophet driven to proclaim God's holy word. The prophet leaves nothing out. Now we could preach a whole message right there that a true 
person, a true prophet, a true minister of the gospel won't leave anything out. Won't just choose to speak on things that make us feel good about ourselves. In fact, it goes on. His message embraces the Lord's full character and encompasses his mighty works. It plunges to the terrifying depths of God's judgment and soars to the rich heights of God's mercy. Even though God was about to judge his people, he would also show them mercy. And through them, he would shower mercy on all mankind. So what, I'm, what we want to do this morning is we want to jump into the word. We want to jump into what is now our church's favorite prophet. And uh, we want to listen to the warnings of gloom. While at the same time this morning, we want to desire the promise of glory. The promise of glory that is a promise for every one of us in here who um, has trusted um, the one that Micah was pointing us to. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read uh, Micah chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 9, and then skip over to Matthew, or excuse me, Micah chapter 6, um, verses 1 through 8. So Micah 1, 1 through 9, and then Micah 6, 1 through 8. So beginning at verse 1, it says this. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Morseth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valley will split open like wax before the fire, like waters pour down a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is a transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and well, I will go stripped and, and naked. Uh, I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. And if we can flip over to Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. And it says this, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray. Father, we come today to yet another prophet who gives us yet another warning. 
And Lord, what we don't want to do is become so familiar with these warnings that we lose sight of the fact that these warnings are still ringing out um, warnings today to those who do not know you. While at the same time, Lord, they're meant to give us continual hope, those who do know you. So today, Lord, help us to fill the gloom, to understand the reality of what that means for those who don't know you, but also, Lord, help us to, to desire the glory, the hope of your promises and what they mean for us, for us. Lord, lead us into your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So think about what we just read. There's not a lot of hope um, in, in what we just read. The Lord was coming. The mountains would melt. Israel would be a heap. Judah would be an incurable or has an incurable wound. Then it goes from bad to worse when we get um, to Micah 6 and it becomes extremely personal. The Israelites now have a warped view concerning God. And verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6, God basically asked the question, what have I done to you? Have I done something bad to you that you would respond this way? And then God reminds them that he had delivered them from the hand of Egypt. That he had done other righteous acts on their behalf. And then think about, look at verses 6 and 7 again. Listen to their response. This is their response to God saying, What have I done to you that you would treat me this way? And in verse 6 they say, With what shall we come before the Lord? Bow myself before God on high. Shall we come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Listen to this. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So instead of the people responding in gratitude with what God had done for them, they exposed themselves. Whether they intended to or not, they paint a picture of of God as if he seems demanding or cruel or impossible to satisfy, or that God would ever ask us to sacrifice our children for our own sin. And it got me thinking, many people, and I said this earlier in the prayer, but many people are quick to believe in a God who switches back and forth between emotions and between many characteristics. Basically, many people have the idea of God that he is bipolar, that you never know how to respond to him. He might be angry. He might be happy. He might, um, his holiness might be shining through in this moment and dare not show yourself. Or maybe his love is there. So you can um, proceed nicely, maybe with your tail between your legs like a puppy dog would, would come to its owner. Yet what Micah would have us see is that God is not so divided. God is not divided in this way. I love the words A.W. Tozer. Um, in our discipleship group, I'm reading a book called The Presence of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. It is, um, I think, 25, 26 chapters, really small, four or five pages that um, just uh, make known the characteristics, the attributes of God. And it's just rocking my world. But in it, um, he says this, all of God's acts are consistent with all of his attributes. All that God does agrees with all that God is. God being who he is cannot cease to be what he is. And being what he is, he cannot act out of character with himself. For instance, the Bible teaches that God is love. Some have interpreted this in such a way as virtually to deny that God is just. Others press the biblical doctrine of God's goodness so far that it has, it has been made to contradict God's holiness. Or they make God's compassion Cancel out God's truth. We can hold a correct view of truth only by daring to believe everything God has said about himself. 
And Micah paints a picture of a God who is both just and gracious, who declares doom for those who reject him, but also declares glory for those who respond to him. Just think about this. Prophets like Micah do not bring doom. They only simply announce that doom would come. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at the, the gloom first, then we're going to move to mercy, and then lastly we're going to focus on the promise of glory as revealed through the Messiah who would come. So let's unpack this morning quickly three truths that rise to the surface of the book of, of Michael. We could go many more truths, but for the sake of time, just three. And the first is this, the judgment of God is threatened. So the judgment of God is threatened. We see it all throughout the book of Micah. But this book begins, of course, by declaring that God was coming to confront his people in their sin, meaning that God doesn't just turn his head to the sins of his people. Or let me put it this way. God cannot be righteous and yet be indifferent towards sin. God can't be righteous and yet be indifferent towards sin. So we think about this. Look, at, look back at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So chapter 1, verses 1, or excuse me, verses 2 and 3 says, Hear you people, all of you, pay attention. So the, the phones are going off. Beep! God's trying to get the people's attention. All the earth, all that is in it, let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Look at verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. So we know this, this picture. Chapter 2 continues this thought. We learned that the people of Judah had actually sunk to loving false prophets and loving their false prophecies. In fact, look at verse um, chapter 2, verse 6. And what this shows us is that the, the people of Judah weren't just content with lying with their own mouths. They wanted to put lies in God's mouth. Look what it says. Chapter 2, verse 6. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Meaning, Judah was, they were raising up prophets who would not tell them the truth, but instead would say, don't listen to prophets like Micah. What he's saying is not true. In fact, our land and our history and our future is filled with nothing but good things. God has good things for us, not just not, not bad things, only good things. Does that sound familiar with a lot of what we hear? Be careful of people saying, I know the word of God says this, but I really believe it's this. Anytime you, let me, here's a good thought for us today. Anytime you quote the Bible and then say the word but, everything you say after is wrong. That's just a good thought. Quote a Bible verse, but everything else is on shaky ground. You better be very, very careful there. But think about this. Can you imagine picking a doctor based on how cheery and optimistic their diagnoses were? So imagine going to a doctor and hearing a diagnosis and going, I need a second opinion. So going to that second opinion, the doctor giving you the same diagnosis, and you're like, well, I need a third opinion. And then you go to the third opinion, and the doctor says, well, we're not going to focus on what's wrong with you. We're going to focus on how you feel about it. And you go, I like this guy. This is going to be my doctor from now on. Can you imagine choosing a doctor who would ignore the symptoms for the sake of just telling you, I just want you to feel good. 
I mean, just imagine, we would never pick a doctor like that. Yet, unfortunately, that is oftentimes the kind of God we want. It's the kind of God we want. We want a God that will tell us only good things about us all the time. And this is what Judah was doing. So God would judge them for their sin. Come back to chapter 1, verse 3. And it says that God was coming to tread upon the high places of the earth. When it says that God was coming to tread, that does not envision a picture of a child skipping through a field of flowers. No, when God comes to tread, when he steps, it means he crushes. For all the weight of his divine righteousness is coming to bear down upon sinful creatures who are more committed to their sins than to him. And God is coming to tread upon them. For their, because of their sin, God threatened doom and he threatened destruction. Here's what we know. Israel would become a heap of ruins, as, as Micah 1.6 says. And it would happen in 722 B.C., shortly after this book was written. Jerusalem would go down into exile to Babylon. It was written in Micah 4.10. It would happen in 586 B.C. Again, Micah did not destroy this nation. He did not lift one finger against this nation. They destroyed themselves. Brothers and sisters, any nation who turns against God and instead pursues idolatry, covetousness, injustice, will destroy themselves from within. Let that be a warning for us. They were destroyed from within. But the worst part of God's threats is this. God doesn't threaten the way we do. I'm not trying to, to give a, a parenting word today because Lord knows there are times where I'm thinking I have no idea what I'm doing. But it, one of the pet peeves that drives me crazy is parents that will say, if you do that one more time, I'm going to do this. And guess what? That kid will go, boop, and the parent will say, do it one more time. Do it one more time. And basically the kid is saying, all you do is just do this. And you're just idle threats mean nothing to me. And guess what? The kids act like it and the kids know it. And here's the difference. God's threats are not idle. Because God is not a man that he could lie. There is certainty in the threats of God. Yet there is mercy. Which leads us to our second truth. So the judgment of God is threatened. The second truth, the mercy of God is initiated. The mercy of God is initiated. So in every section of his prophecy in which we read about the severity of God's judgment, we also read about the sweet hope of God's salvation. After uncovering the sin of God's people, surprising words of light burst forth out of the darkness. Look at chapter 2 and verse 12. So after just exposing the sin of the people, God says in chapter 2, verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. So don't miss what God says that he will do. God says, I will assemble. I will gather. I will set them together. God would save his remnant. That doesn't mean that God wouldn't judge. He will judge, but God will also rescue. And so think about the mercy of God in this way. Who initiates his mercy? Who initiates God's mercy? Let me just make it clear this morning. We don't. We don't initiate his mercy. God does. As we saw last week in the book of Jonah, God doesn't owe us mercy. 
God owes us wrath. He owes us destruction. He doesn't owe us the mercy, yet by his grace, he is merciful. And know this, mercy is not a temporary mood of God. Mercy is an eternal attribute of God. Again, let me reference the words of A.W. Tozer, who said, Forever his mercy stands, a boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. Were there no guilt in the world, no pain, no tears, God would yet be infinitely merciful. But his mercy might, not, or might well remain hidden in his heart if there were no voice to be raised to celebrate the mercy of, of which none felt the need. But then he says this, it is human misery and human sin that call forth the divine mercy. It is because of our sin that we are able to know a God who is always merciful, who has been merciful from the beginning. Just think about the way the book ends. Turn with me to Micah chapter 7. Just think about the way the, the book ends. Micah chapter 7, look at verse 18 with me. Micah 7, verse 18. When you get there, let me hear you say. And it says this. Who is like you? So again, that's what the name Micah means, but it's not about Micah. It's about God. Who is like the Lord, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. So there is great hope ahead for Israel. There is mercy extended. In fact, think about this. Go back in your mind to Genesis chapter 3 and sin entering the world. And then know this. Forgiveness was in the heart of God before sin ever entered the heart of man. Forgiveness was in God's heart before sin was ever in our heart. That is the mercy of our God. That is the mercy that God initiates towards us. In fact, when God, as we said last week, when God came to his people, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, the message wasn't, you've blown it and you're done. The message was, I'm not done with you. Not done with you. The story doesn't end here. We thank God for his mercy. We thank God for his grace. So we see the judgment of God threatened. We see the mercy of God initiated. And then the last truth is this. The glory of God is promised. The glory of God is promised. In the words of John Piper, if we stop here, Micah's picture of a future would be like a portrait without a person. Yet what we know is that God always desires to show himself as much as possible. Therefore, from the days of King David, so think about King David, God promised to send a human king um, through whom, um, through that king, he would rule the world. So when Micah paints a picture of God's future, the visible person that sits um, on the throne is Jesus Christ. Therefore, in order for us to get the whole picture of what is about to come, what the book of Micah is about, we must turn to Micah chapter 5. And in Micah chapter 5, beginning at verse 2, what we have is the most amazing picture of the birth of Christ in all of the Old Testament where Micah predicts the coming of the Messiah, the coming, coming of the one who would be from everlasting, the coming of the one who would be born in Bethlehem. And just look with me, first of all, at verse 2. It says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And look at verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. And this is not on the screen, but let me just say that I want to end by giving you four ways that God's um, that God's glory is promised from verses 4 and 5. Four ways that God's glory is promised from verses 4 and 5. The first is this. God's glory is on display in how he uses the insignificant. In how he uses the insignificant. So in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, we're introduced again to a place called Bethlehem. It's a little town of Bethlehem, as we sing about in, in Christmas. It's, it's scarcely even worth mentioning or even counting among all of the tribes of Judah, yet God chooses to bring forth his magnificent Messiah from this town. Why? Now, one answer could be, well, David was from Bethlehem, so one coming from David must be from Bethlehem. That must be what it's about. But no, it goes deeper. And what we need to understand is this. God chooses something small and insignificant and does something there that changes the course um, of history and eternity. And the reason that God does so, the reason that God uses the small and significant and the insignificant is so that those things cannot boast in themselves just think about how this plays out in the word of God when God chooses a replacement for King Saul he sent Samuel to the little town of Bethlehem when he chose from the sons of Jesse he chose the youngest of the sons of Jesse not the oldest so remember Jacob and Esau here when God chose a man to defeat this Goliath or this giant excuse me named Goliath it was David when God chose a weapon it was a slingshot why is God making these decisions? Why does God do his great work through little towns and youngest sons and slingshots or get to the New Testament? Why does he do his greatest work through mangers and, and mustard seeds? And David tells us why. In fact, turn with me real quick. We're going to do a little bit of flipping real quick. 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath that we know very well. 1 Samuel 17. And in 1 Samuel 17, David tells us right before he slays the giant why God does what he does, why God uses insignificant things. He says to Goliath in verse 45, when you get there, when the rest of you, I'm not going to read it until y'all say amen. Okay, there you go. Uh, so verse 45, uh, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth. And the question here is why? Why? And then the answer, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and not with spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our 
hands. And here is the truth for us today, brothers and sisters. God uses little towns. God uses youngest sons. God uses slingshots to magnify his glory because those things cannot boast in themselves. They cannot boast in their greatness. They can only boast in the greatness of God, which is why, here's a little word, which is why God uses us. When God uses us, it's because we are seeing ourselves as insignificant. We can't receive the glory. It's not our greatness. It is his. It's why Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So God, God's glory on display through using insignificant things. Second of all, God's glory is on display every time he keeps a promise or every time we trust one of his promises. So think about this. The amazing thing about Micah is that Micah declares a certainty of God's promise not at a time when Israel was rising to power, not at a time when everything was, was great. Micah would witness the destruction of Israel. He would predict the fall of Judah. So basically, all the kings of Israel and Judah, done, gone away with. What hope would he have what hope would the people of Judah have? And here's the beautiful truth for us. You can tell how firmly someone believes God's promises by whether it gives them strength and hope when life caves in around them. You can tell how much someone truly trusts and believes in the promises of God by will it strengthen us and will it give us hope when everything else is crashing in around us? And Micah, it appears, never wavered. Even though kings were being exiled and done away with, he knew that God would keep his promise to send a king. So the point is that two centuries worth of terrible circumstances would not nullify the word of God. What God speaks will come to pass. There is nothing more firm in this world, get this, than the word of God. Nothing more firm in this world than the word of God. Which leads us to the third thing that we have to understand is this. God's glory is on display through his care and concern for his people. So look with me. Look back at, at Micah chapter 5. In Micah chapter 5. So God's purpose in sending the Messiah was not just to display his glory, but it was also to shepherd his people. We see that when we get to chapter 5 and verse 4. Let me just lay it out here. Everybody in this room and everybody in this world needs a divine shepherd. In Matthew 9, Jesus looked at the crowd and he had compassion upon them because they were sheep without a what? They didn't have a shepherd. Everyone needs a divine shepherd. Now, here's the problem. You may not feel it right now in your own strength. Maybe everything's going well in your life right now, so you don't feel your need for a divine shepherd. But one day you will feel your weakness. One day when you're unable to find green pastures on your own. One day when it seems like the streams that you're living in have dried up and there are no more still waters to lie by. Or when you must walk through the valley of the shadow of death and there is no rod or staff of God to comfort you. In those moments, you will understand your need for a divine shepherd. We need a shepherd, and God has sent us not just a good shepherd. He has sent us a great shepherd. And just think about what the shepherd offers. Look at verse 4. And he shall stand. 
Our shepherd shall stand. Our shepherd isn't lying around watching TV, ignoring his sheep. Our shepherd is alert. He is working on behalf of his sheep who he called by his name. He is standing. He is watching. He is working on our behalf. And then keep reading verse 4. Secondly, he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. Every good intention that the shepherd has for his sheep will not be hindered because of lack of strength. The strength of the Lord is omnipotent strength. Therefore, get this, if you are trusting in Christ, omnipotent strength is on our side. Therefore, if omnipotent strength is on your side, walk like an obedient sheep behind him. In fact, walk like a confident sheep behind him because he is your shepherd. And because he's your shepherd, there's confidence in that. Let me just say this. I have no confidence in my ability to do what's right tomorrow or to do what's right um, two weeks from now. I have no confidence in my ability, but I have every, every bit of confidence in God's ability to do what is right tomorrow and to do what is right forever. So therefore, that gives me the ability to confidently stand by him, behind him saying, I'm not the shepherd. He is the shepherd, and he is the good and the great and the chief shepherd. And I will place myself right behind him. And then notice this. Note, look at the end of verse 4. I love this. It says, In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He will be great to the ends of the earth. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the overall hope is that Jesus Christ has come and he will come again and he will gather his flock. And then the, the fourth way God's glory is magnified. Look at verse 5. God's glory is on display in the peace that he gives to his people. Verse 5 says, and he shall be their peace. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't just say he will give us peace. He will be our peace. And for those that don't understand what that means, turn with me to one more scripture, Romans chapter 5. For those that don't understand that he is our peace, Romans chapter 5. So Romans chapter 5. And this is it, I promise. But let's finish strong here. Romans chapter 5. When you get there, let me hear you say. When you want me to read and finish up the message, let me hear you say. All right, so verse 1 of chapter 5 says this. So he shall be our peace. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes for us our peace. He is our peace. We're not just led securely by our shepherd and not... Not, not just able to trust all his promises, although we are, we do so with him as our peace. Christ does that for us. In Ephesians 2, we're told he is our peace. In, in Philippians 4, 7, we're told that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the peace, here's what I believe. The peace that God gives us within 
brings him glory without. The peace that God gives us within gives God glory without. Therefore, Micah chapter 7, verse 18, who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? I don't know how you would answer that question. Let me put one more um, little thing on the screen this morning. One more little quote that I just want to leave you with. Who is like the Lord? I don't know how you would answer, but all of heaven declares there is no God like him. There's no one like him. A holy God who pardons an unholy people. No false God has ever made such claim. This is the one message that the prophet loved to proclaim above all to all who would listen. Think about this. Every time the prophet would say Micah, he was reminding himself and reminding others that there is no God like our God. There is no God like our God. May we never forget there is no God like our God. There is gloom coming for those who do not trust him, but there is glory coming for those who will. There is glory coming for those who will, and what a glory it will be. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand to your feet if you're able as we ask the musicians of Brother Frank to come forward and enter into a time of invitation and consecration where we ask that whatever the Lord is telling us to do, that we would, we would do it. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now. Looking at this book, God, sometimes we don't like these kind of messages. They definitely don't make us feel great about ourselves. And Father, that's the point. For it is way more advantageous, Father, that we continually feel good about you than that we, than that we continually feel good about ourselves. There is no good in us. There is no strength in us apart from you. There is no hope in us apart from you. According to your word in Ephesians 2, those without Christ are without hope in this world. Yet for those who are in you, there is hope and there is peace and there is strength and there is promise and there is glory. Therefore, God, we want to hold tight to your mercy that you have initiated and extended to us. And we want to, Lord desire and live for your glory. God, we want to live for your glory. For your glory is what we get when you go public with all that you are. And the great need of the world is not to see us for all that we are. The great need of the world is to see you for who you are. God, help us as a faith family. I pray as we have done for 90 years, and I pray that we'll do it however long that you tarry, that we will point people to how great you are, that we will declare in every circumstance and every situation who is like our God. Lord, when things are caving in around us, who is like our God? When we don't understand what's coming, who is like our God? When we don't know what to do about a certain situation, who is like our God? Knowing that you are still the great I am, meaning that you will be everything we need you to be. And exactly right when we need you to be it. For you will always be who you have always been. We rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.